So last week I said that I only have illustrations from The Office and not from C.S. Lewis, and I've felt deeply convicted by that. So uh, here I am, repenting (laughs) and opening with a C.S. Lewis illustration. (laughs) So this is from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. And it's it's a beautiful story, has some scary turns to it. And there's a moment in which the prince... Uh, who's been captured, is there along in a cave along with some of the children who are there to rescue him. And the children come to get him, and they try to escape from this cave. But there's an evil witch who is there, trying to trick them, trying to get them to stay. And so what this witch does is she bows down, and she, she lights a little fire, and the fire starts emitting this mysterious green smoke that acts as a spell over the children. And they begin to kind of slip in consciousness. They forgot to forget their words. Their language starts to, to fade from them. They become enchanted by this spell. They have a hard time remembering what it is that they're even doing there in the cave to begin with. And finally, one of the children says, we need to go back to Narnia. We need to get to Narnia. And the witch says, Narnia? You've said this word before, but there's no such place as Narnia. That is just a dream. And the children repeat after her, yes, Narnia is just a dream. And then one of the children tries to protest against this a little bit. And he says, no, this is real. In fact, I I know that that Narnia is a land where there is sky and stars and, and the sun is there. And the witch goes, really? The sun? That sounds interesting. What is the sun? And one of the children points to the lamp that's hanging in the cave and says, it's, it's like that lamp, only it's, it's much bigger. It illuminates everything. It's huge. And the witch says, well, if it's like the lamp, then what does it hang from? And then the children say, oh, that's a good question. We haven't, we haven't thought of that before. And she says, you see, you're just pointing to things here and you're imagining bigger versions of them that are out there. And eventually the children start to succumb to this enchantment. They begin to believe that all there is to the world, all that there is to reality itself, is the cave. And the narrator, C.S. Lewis, says, the more enchanted you get, the less you think that you are enchanted at all. Well, finally, one of the children says, well, I know Aslan's real. The great lion, he for sure is real. And the witch says, really? Aslan. Now that is a pretty name, but tell me, what is a lion? And one of the children says, well, the lion, it's, it's like a cat. And the witch says, oh, I love cats. There she is, just mocking them. But the child goes on and says, but it's much bigger, and it has a huge mane, and in, in fact, he's terrific or terribly strong. And again, the witch says, I do believe that you are just taking something that you have seen and that you are imagining something much bigger This is a child's game, and you are too old. So what happens when I get into the story. It's a beautiful story. We should just read this, huh? (laughs) The the witch says, this is but a child's game, and you are too old for make-believe. Come now, lay down, go to sleep, dear child. Well, finally, one of the characters just gets a a bolt of boldness, runs over to to the fire, stamps it out with his heel, and the children snap out of the spell. Well, this enrages the, sna- the, the witch, as you could imagine. And she begins to transform her shape within an instant. 
Her limbs fold into her side. Her body grows taller. Her skin becomes green. Her face becomes longer. She transforms into this giant snake and wraps herself around the prince himself. Will the children, realizing what's going on, draw their swords and chop off the snake's head? Praise the Lord. (laughs) Well, we have been preaching through a series this month a series talking about the mission statement of our diocese. A diocese is a collection of churches. We belong to the Diocese of the Upper Midwest. And the mission statement of our diocese is that we are planting a revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, I preached on revival and the Lord's desire to bring life into all of us. Last week, I preached on the word and the power that it has to transform our lives. And today, we're going to be talking about the power of the sacrament and the beauty of the sacramental life, and the reality that it points us to. So what is it that I mean by sacrament? Well, I I mean much more than the fact that we just gather here and we have communion on a weekly basis. I mean more than we just baptize children of, of believing parents. I mean more than just we bow at the cross or we anoint ourselves with oil or, or we enjoy this beautiful liturgy. I mean much, much more than all of that. The sacramental life is the insistence that God uses the visible things of this world to convey greater truths, deeper meanings. The sacramental life is the insistence that God has revealed his mysteries to us. In fact, that's what sacrament means. If you trace back the meaning of the word sacrament, it's mystery, mystery revealed. Well, God uses things like water and bread and wine to reveal the mysteries of his grace and his power. The sacramental life is the insistence that matter matters. And I believe that in today's fragmented, splintered, divided world, a sacramental imagination is tremendously needed by us all. So I'm going to talk I'm going to have two big halves to my sermon today. I'm going to talk about the power of the devil, the divisive work of the devil, and then we're going to talk about the power of Christ coming through in the sacramental life. So it's no coincidence that C.S. Lewis, in this, in this story, depicts the witch's true form as a big, gigantic snake. We're reminded immediately, or probably many of you were reminded of the snake's presence in the opening pages of the Holy Scriptures. Even the witch's questions themselves remind us of the devil's question to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say Do not eat from the tree, the devil asks. In fact, that word devil comes from the same word that we have for divide. The devil is the great divider. This is, in essence, what the devil does. He is a liar. He's a thief. He's an accuser. And his goal is to divide, divide, divide. And ultimately, he tries to divide us from God himself. Did God really say is the devil's oldest and most effective trick. Because what the devil is doing, even in that question, is he's trying to divide God's word from God's character. This is what God says out loud, yes, but that's probably different than what God is actually thinking. You see, the devil is trying to trick you into thinking that God is somehow holding something back from you, that there is a secret that God has to keep from you that there is a hidden God behind the actual presented God. You see, the devil is trying to divide you. 
from God, trying to turn your attention away from God, to try to get you to be suspicious of God himself. And what the devil is doing here is luring you deeper and deeper into the darkness of a cave, deeper into confusion. Well, not only does the devil divide us from God himself, but the the devil divides us from the way in which we view reality itself, the way in which we perceive the world around us. So in the, in the first century and, and uh, a little bit later, the devil was doing this uh, in, a, in, in a variety of ways. And what the ancient church called this, called these divisive tactics of the devil, was this, they called this Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, it was, a, it was a movement that captured the imaginations of a lot of the early church. And it takes many, many forms. But most commonly, Gnosticism taught that the, mis- the material world that we experience here the material world, the, mat- the world of matter, is broken, that it's deteriorating, that, it, that it's the world of suffering and the world of evil. But then it's the spiritual world, the world that's out there, the invisible world, that's what's pure, that's what's good. And so this movement, this devilish Gnostic movement, sought to divide the material from the spiritual. Well, the devil is still using these tactics today. Gnosticism is not gone. No, we, we have many, many forms of it today. We have materialism. The teaching that, that life, that meaning that is found in the sum of the possessions that you own. I am what I own is the lie of materialism. And I don't have happiness until I own the right stuff. Or the lie of capitalism, that, that meaning is attained by the things that I do, the things that I make, the career I have. Or the lie of technology, right? That I'm not the content of my character. No, it separates our character from our presentation, from our, rep, our reputation. I'm not, who, I'm not my character. Instead, I am what I post. I'm my image. Or the lies that we hear in, our, in the sexual world right now. That my body has no bearing on who I am, but instead I'm defined by how I feel, or I'm defined by my desires. Do you see how all these different forms of divisiveness that are happening in our world today? All these ways in which the different spheres of our lives are being split apart from one another and pitted against one another? This is the devil's divisive work. And this happens in our churches as well. This pours into the church. A lot of us maybe have experienced situations where discipleship, our walk with Christ, was perceived to be purely an intellectual endeavor. Your, your healthiness with God, your walk with God, was valued by how much you actually know, how much you learn, that it's an intellectual endeavor. Or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, where maybe you come from a tradition that taught you that it's your emotional life, it's these emotional highs that defines your relationship with God, and therefore you're always chasing whatever that next emotional high is. And if you don't have it, if you can't attain that, well then it's, it's surely a sign that God doesn't like you. It's divisive, divisive. So make no mistake about this. All of this fragmentation that we experience both in society and in the church amounts to nothing more than a narrow fragmented religion. Well, finally, the the devil seeks to divide us even within our own hearts. Through mockery and lies, he tries to flatline our hearts. And some of you know exactly what I mean by this. You've experienced this mockery. 
You've experienced the shame of the world that tr- or the shame that the world tries to place upon you. Maybe you've experienced this in the workplace. A lot of you kids, maybe you experienced this even in your schools. Or maybe even in the sad moments of life, some of you experienced this in your families. That when you try to bring up things like wholeness and truth and beauty and goodness, when you try to, to talk about moments in which the spiritual is breaking into the material world, you're met with mocking words. That's merely childish play. That's just pretend. Go to sleep now. What the devil is doing is trying to divide your heart and flatline you. And our motivation for truth gets robbed. The devil tries to divide us from God. The devil tries to divide us from reality. And the devil tries to divide our own hearts. Well, praise be to God for Jesus Christ, the one who heals the divide, the one who binds our wounds, the one who enters into our world. In fact, that is what the emphasis is of the sacramental life. That is the insistence of sacramental living, that Jesus Christ is the one who came down to be with us. So now I'd like to turn our attention to John chapter 6. And as you might guess, there's so much that is in this that I don't have time to go into today. We could do an entire series on the beauty and the goodness in John chapter 6. But what I want to point out today is that this is a sacramental moment in the Gospels. This is a, a beautiful, full sacramental moment. And part of the reason why we know that is because John makes it pretty clear. He uses sacramental language in this. Jesus takes bread, gives thanks, and then gives it to them. He distributes them. You'll see those phrases throughout the New Testament. And that's kind of the New Testament writer's way of saying, pay attention to this. This is a sacramental moment. What we are doing on a Sunday morning has bearing on this moment right here. This moment informs what we are doing up here, is what the gospel writers are telling us. The word give thanks is Eucharist. So, like I said, this is a sacramental moment. Well, let's talk about the story for a second. So Jesus Christ is teaching. There's a great crowd who is here, and he realizes the people don't have any food, and his disciples don't have any ideas on how to get food. And then a child offers up what he has. And I think Andrew, he's kind of trying to take credit for that. (laughs) So a child offers up what he has, and Jesus says, this is good. I can use this. And so Jesus takes the bread. He lifts it up to the Lord. He blesses it. He gives thanks for it. And then he distributes it to the great crowd. And all are fed, men, women, and children, eat of this miraculous meal. The bread multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And afterwards, there's been so much multiplication of this bread that there's 12 baskets that are left over. What a great abundance, right? Now, the story continues. There's much more than actually what was read here this morning. The story continues. In fact, the next day, the crowd, they find Jesus again. They want to kind of have some more free bread. They, They find Jesus again. And this time, Jesus explains to them a little bit of what what happened the day before. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Well, the crowd is incredibly confused by this, to say the least. And what Jesus does is he doesn't explain things in a more clear way. No, instead what he says is he repeats himself. He says, no, really, I am the living bread. 
given for the life of the world. Well, now the crowd moves from beyond confusion, and now they're angry. <laughs> and, and rather than calming them down, Jesus, again, pushes the point even further. I don't think Jesus is into the whole church growth movement. <laughs> what he says to them is, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Well, what in the world does this say about the sacramental life? Specifically, what does this say about Jesus Christ healing our divided world? Well, I think there's three things, at least, that we can draw from this passage. There's many more, if time allowed it. But first, when the devil tries to divide you from the Father, Jesus Christ illuminates the Father to us. You see, Jesus Christ is the sacrament of the Father. All throughout the Gospels, he tells everyone, if you want to see the Father, look at me. Look at me. Jesus Christ is the sacrament of the Father. Don't take for granted the fact that this is a story about Jesus. This is a story about God made flesh, the mystery of God revealed. Jesus Christ is God clothed in flesh. He is Yahweh, the God of the angel armies, now standing among his people looking around and teaching them face to face. He is the one who brought these rescued slaves out of Egypt and through the waters of the Red Sea. This is the one who fed his people in the desert the bread from heaven. This is the one who brings his people into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, we are a sacramental people because we are incarnational people. Because we believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In Christ, heaven and earth meet. He is the sacrament of the Father who comes down to heal our divided world. Secondly, the devil tries to divide you from reality itself. Well, the sacraments are an invitation into participation with Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, this is a story about Jesus' provision. But I love that he's inviting the others around him into this story. He doesn't just provide the meal all by himself. No, he, he invites the disciples into this process. And not just disciples, but he invites kids into this too. Kids, you're invited into the sacramental life. I hope you saw that, right? Did you notice that it was a small boy who opened up his backpack and, and shared what he had? God wants to know what's in your backpack. He cares about it. He thinks that what you have is a big deal. And if you offer it to him, if you give it to him, he will multiply it and multiply it and feed many, many people. Because God wants you to be involved. God wants your participation in what he is doing. This is what sacramental participation is. Well, it's also more than this. It's more than just having a part to play. We get to participate in the body and the in the ministry of Jesus you see, friends, when you are baptized, you are baptized into Christ himself and you are a new creation. That is what Paul tells us in Romans 6. Paul says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. You know what I think of when I hear that phrase, newness of life? This is a revival movement. 
Like, that's what's going on here. It reminds me of, of what we were talking about two weeks ago. Jesus Christ came to give us new life, to breathe new life into us. There is a real ontological transformation that happens into us when we are baptized into Christ. New life, new birth, new belonging, new home that we are given again. And here at the table, we're given ongoing participation in the life of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And Jesus Christ himself in, the, in, in this same chapter says, I am the living bread of heaven given for the life of the world. You are what you eat. You know that, right? We eat the body and the blood of Christ and we become the body of Christ. We, the church, the body of Christ. We are the sacrament of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? Like when we come and we gather here today, we are not just encountering good stories and catching up on one another's lives, hearing how our weeks went. We're enjoying the fellowship of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is healing the divide by calling us into his sacramental participation with himself. Well, finally, where the devil tries to flatline your heart, when he tries to mock you and steal your motivation, make you absolutely lifeless, the sacraments revive you for mission. The sacraments fuel you to be sent out. Don't you just love that there's 12 baskets left over on this? That 12, that's not a, that's not a, uh, uh, that's not a random number. 12 is a symbol of the people of God. In the Old Testament, the, um, the people of Israel. In the New Testament, 12 symbolizes the church. There's 12 apostles. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's multiplying for that crowd that, that is there that morning, and there's 12 baskets left over, and he's saying to you and to me, here today in 2019, these baskets are for you. These baskets are for you. You've got the bread of the world right here. I'm giving you my very self. This is Jesus Christ saying, church, you are my beloved, and this is for you. Now it's your turn. Distribute this. Pass this out. Hand this out into the neighborhoods where you are. I mean... You know, that's what I mean by, you know what I mean. Here in church, we're not going to run around and do door-to-door uh, communion. That could be a little interesting. <laughs> so earlier this week, I was grabbing coffee with someone, and we were talking about various aspects of the church. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I love that this is a place where my children can come and be fed by Jesus Christ. They don't have to doubt that this is a place where they belong. And it is my honor every week to serve you the body and blood of Jesus Christ, his real presence. And it's not because I'm anyone special. No, I'm just merely a waiter here at the table. All of us who are standing up here, we're, we're baptized believers who are serving you, the people of God, from Jesus Christ. He is the host. He is the one who descends his presence upon us and gives us his very self. And I see that you're meeting him. I know that. Some of you come up and, you know, maybe it was a dud sermon day or, you know, I, I don't want to pretend that every day is, you know, wonderful or whatever. And there's just tears in your eyes because you're encountering Christ himself. He's ministering to you. I see it in your faces. I can, I can feel it in my soul that the presence of Christ is meeting you there in that moment and nourishing you. He's giving you life. Such an honor, such a privilege. Friends, we don't just come here just to hear stories about God. 
And I want to be careful. Don't, don't mishear me here. I, I value the word of God. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not downplaying the Bible at all. Last week, I talked about how I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for the, the power of the Holy Scriptures to transform my life. But we don't just come here to tell stories about God. The story continues. We come here to actually give people God himself, to, to, in, to ingest him, to receive him, to participate in him. Because we live in a world that is under dark enchantment. There is a smoke that is just covering our imaginations. This green fog. We're in the bottom of a cave, enchanted. We're like children searching for language to describe what it is that we know in our hearts of hearts is true and real and of substance. And the world, the powers of the air, insist that those desires are nothing but a dream. It's telling us, the world is telling us that we're foolish. But brothers and sisters, we have been given language. We have been given the word of God incarnate, tangible. You can touch and feel and smell. You can drink this. You can let this wash over your head. You can be cleaned by this. We have the real, tangible, powerful presence of Jesus Christ. And through the power of his cross, Jesus Christ comes over there and with his heel, he stomps out that horrible, wicked spell. Through the power of the cross, he pulls out his sword and he chops off the head of the serpent, never to be seen again. And from his wounded side flows forth water and blood. We, the church, get to then distribute that to the world through the washing of sins, through the waters of baptism, through the revival of life, at the power of the table, we get to experience the real presence of Jesus Christ. This is why we plant churches. This is why we plant churches. We're not here because we've got pretty liturgy. And I will argue that we have the prettiest liturgy of any denomination. It is amazing. We've got great liturgy. This Book of Common... I don't know if we need to clap for that. But this Book of Common Prayer is gorgeous. We've got great musicians. We've got awesome music. We've got wonderful community. You're my favorite people in the world. Like, it's so fun hanging out with you. But that is not why we're here. We plant churches because the devil is out there destroying lives. He's devouring us. He's dividing us. He's dividing our own hearts. We plant churches because we have the presence of Christ. We plant churches because we have the body of Christ, God himself with us. We have a table where we can enjoy a feast with God every single week. An abundant feast. And someday, oh, it's going to be much more abundant than this. Jesus Christ came to give us himself for the life of the world. Amen? Amen. So the question is, are you hungry? Yes. Are you hungry? Do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus? Let us pray. Lord God, you are with us. You are with us, Lord. We get to experience you. We get to eat of you. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith. Give us eyes to see you moving among us, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.